Okay, so what happens when you let Saudi Arabia into the BRICS, <laughs> given the other members? You have two of the three largest oil producers in the world, mm -hmm. Russia and Saudi Arabia. You have two of the three largest nuclear arsenals in the world, Russia and China. Um, you have, you know, throwing India in um, and, and, and some others, you have uh, about 50% of global population, 54% of global GDP using purchasing power parity. Well, this is not the old third world. These are not basket cases. These are many of the biggest economies in the world that collectively have uh, enormous power, natural resources, uh, gold reserves, landmass, population, military. And again, I could go down the list, but this is a block that is as powerful in its own way by a lot of these metrics as the collective West, which would I would call, you know, US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and a few others. Hello, and welcome to Wealthy On. Uh, you might uh, figure out that I am not Adam Taggart. This is Stephanie Pomboy of Macro Mavens standing in for Adam today, who uh, is out. He probably wouldn't want me to advertise this, but he's celebrating his birthday. Um, and so here I am, and I have the great pleasure of having a conversation with uh, the foremost authority, I would say, on uh, what's happening in terms of the world currency regime, current and uh, future, and that is none other than Jim Rickards. And I'm so excited to be having this conversation with him because there's a lot, as you will learn, um, that's going to unfold in the coming months that will have major implications for investors all around the globe. So this should be a very interesting and enlightening conversation. Jim, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with you. No, it's always a pleasure. I, I look forward to this because I this is where I get to learn a ton of stuff. Um, so I, I feel like I could just sit in the back seat of the classroom and uh, and listen. But um, you know, this whole topic of the future of the dollar as a reserve currency has really um, become sort of a focus of attention on the heels of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and then the sanction of their reserves. And, and people came to understand that, you know, by weaponizing the dollar in that fashion, that they were kind of pushing uh, the rest of the world to find alternatives because who knows if they'd have access to those dollars, in, you know, in certain circumstances. Um, and so it's shined a light on a topic that I know you and I have been looking at for much, much longer than the last, 15 months, um, you know, and I think it's important, we don't need to go through the whole history, but to kind of enlighten people about how this is just, you know, the the latest installment in a, you know, latest chapter, let's say, in a book that's been, uh, you know, going on for, I would argue, two decades now with, you know, with this de-dollarization that people are talking about, really starting back in around 2000 and gaining particular momentum after the global financial crisis in 2009. And now here we are again, and things are really heating up again. So maybe in sort of very cursory fashion, you can kind of explain to people how much work has gone in to this process of creating a viable alternative to the US dollar um, over the last 20 years, and what this uh, upcoming BRICS meeting in August means in that context 
Yeah, I'd be, I'd be glad to do that, Stephanie. And the great thing about your audience, your audience is so smart. We don't have to go over every twist and turn of international monetary policy over the last 50 years. We could, but we're not going to, we're not going to do that. I think people know the, the outline. Yeah, it's really what's coming. That is, uh, that's, that's the main event. Um, so a, a couple of things, um, we should probably, without taking too much for granted, we should probably just define BRICS. It's an acronym, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. So those are the BRICS. Um, and started in uh, 2002 as a Goldman Sachs marketing gimmick. Uh, Jim O'Neill and some partners came up with it. Uh, and all they did, I'm not, I'm not diminishing what they did, but they kind of took the leading economies, took out the G7 and Switzerland and a couple of obvious leaders and said, well, who's left uh, that will be the up and comers, the fastest growing developing economies? Then they got Brazil, Russia, India, and China. That was kind of easy. And then a few years later, they added um, uh, South Africa, uh, which was a little bit of a favorite of South Africa. South Africa is not anywhere near as large as those other economies or as important. However, it is um, one of the biggest economies in Africa. And if you're going to do, if you're going to be the BRICS, you probably uh, you can't just be South America and Asia. You probably need to include um, an African country. So they picked South Africa. So that's how it evolved. So, uh, so for a couple of years, it was a Goldman marketing brochure. But then in 2006, at the United Nations General Assembly in New York, annual meeting, uh, and it's famous, you know, heads of state and foreign ministers show up from all over the world. But they have what they call these bilateral uh, meetings on the sidelines. And sometimes there are three or four say, hey, we're all here. Let's just grab a conference room and sit down and talk. Well, Brazil, Russia, India, and China um, this was uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who was the, the president at the time. You know, of course, Putin is president today. Um, uh, Hu Jintao, um, before uh, Xi Jinping, and uh, uh, the uh, the prime minister of uh, who actually was Lula da Silva at the end. He got arrested later, went to jail, got out, and now he's back. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and the and the prime minister of India. So they sat down. And they said, we actually have a lot in common, a lot to talk about. And we added it up. We're, we're a pretty powerful group. So they formalized it. And then in 2009, they had a summit conference, a formal summit conference with an agenda and all that in uh, Ekaterinburg in Russia and the Russian Federation. Um, and for those who know the Russian history, that's the place where the Bolsheviks uh, killed the czar and his ministers and the, and the, and the Romanov family. But I guess the Russians have a little bit of a sense of humor. But anyway, that's where they had this summit and they, they solidified, OK, we're a group. We're going to work together. And they did. And over the coming years, they they multiplied numerous, numerous subgroups. That people say it's the BRICS meeting coming up August 22nd. Well, yeah, that's the leaders' summit. They have about 190 meetings a year. They have working groups on uh, women's rights, uh, sports, uh, the environment, climate change. You know, you could go on and on. Um, it, it's a very active what they call secretariat, which is you know central organization. Um, a few years later, in uh, 2014. They formed what they call the New Development Bank, NDB. Well, what's the New Development Bank? They uh, first of all, it's got 100 billion of capital, part paid in, part callable, uh, but it also has borrowing power with that kind of ownership and that kind of capital on the balance sheet. They've got hundreds of billions of dollars of borrowing power. They could easily get a, a, a pretty good credit rating. Uh, and the the purpose is to make loans for development projects to the member countries. And by the way, there are stockholders of the New Development Bank who are not BRICS, but they're kind of in the club. Um, 
Well, what does that sound like? Multilateral. The, the uh, World Bank. <laughs> well, it's the World Bank. That's a, you, that's exactly right. They copy <laughs> the World Bank on their own terms with their own governance. Okay. The following year, they created something called the Contingent Reserve Arrangement. Well, what's that? Again, they threw in um, a couple hundred billion dollars from the members. China was the biggest contributor. Again, with borrowing power. So take a couple hundred billion times five or 10, you're, that's that's your power. Um, and this institution was designed to be a swing lender to members who were running pay, uh, trade uh, uh, deficits or facing a run on their currency or facing the prospect of having to close the capital account. Exactly what we saw in 1997, 98, by the way, I was, I was there for that one. We ended up with long-term capital, but um, well, uh, gee, a pool that is a swing lender to co uh, countries with um, uh, balance of payments deficit. What does that sound like? That's the IMF. That's the IMF. So basically they copy the World Bank they copied the IMF. And I want to make two points. Number one, it's not like the BRICS popped up six months ago and said, hey, we're going to have a new currency. You know, it's like uh, uh, Mickey Rooney and uh, Judy Garland putting on a play. This has been in the works for 17 years. And it's typical Russian, Chinese. They, they kind of run a show, very methodical. So they duplicated the World Bank. They duplicated the IMF. Uh, now they have a applicants for membership. And there are, I think, 21 or more countries who have applied for, well, seven have formally applied for membership. They filled out their college essay and they want to be members. And then another 13 or 14 um, on the waiting list, so to speak, and uh, will perhaps eventually become members. But when you add those in, some of these will be admitted um, in August, August 22nd. That's the next big meeting, uh, starting with Saudi Arabia. Okay, so what happens when you let Saudi Arabia into the BRICS, <laughs> given the other members? You have two of the three largest oil producers in the world, mm -hmm. Russia and Saudi Arabia. You have two of the three largest nuclear arsenals in the world, Russia and China. Um, you have, you know, throwing India in um, and, and, and some others, you have uh, about 50% of global population, 54% of global GDP using purchasing power parity. That's you can debate the method, but just if you do purchasing power parity, you get over half of, of G GDP, 30% of the global landmass. I could go on and on. My point is that the, you know, I did, I learned development economics in the 1970s. We had something called the third world. It was like, it was Russia or, you know, Soviet Union and the US. And then there was the third world. And all you knew about them was they were poor and, you know, you had to get them. <laughs> Get, get them off the runway. We actually had a, a, the runway theory of how you grow. Turned out to be wrong, but that's what we learned. Um, well, this is not the old third world. These are not basket cases. These are many of the biggest economies in the world that collectively have uh, enormous power, natural resources, uh, gold reserves, landmass, population, military. And again, I could go down the list, but this is a block that is as powerful in its own way by a lot of these metrics as the collective West, which would I would call, you know, US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and a few others. So that's who this group is. Um, now there are a couple other groups that may join forces with the BRICS. Uh, there's something called the Eurasian Economic Union. Everyone's like, what the heck is that? Well, that's the EEU is was Putin's answer. This has been around for a long time. This goes back to the uh, early 2000s. This was Putin's answer to the EU. He said, well, you got the EU. We got the EEU. Now it's Russia and some Central Asian republics. I'm not, you know, Belarus and Tajikistan. I'm not saying this is uh, 
France, Germany, and Italy, but it is a, uh, a group that have reduced tariffs and um, improved trade between themselves. And there's a more another powerful group called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mm -hmm. or the SCO, led by China. And these are mostly Central Asian republics, including uh, uh, Kazakhstan and um, uh, Kazakhstan and some others. But but they're all talking to each other. Now, what's the common denominator? Well, it's basically Russia and China. Uh, China's a member of two. Russia is the only country in the world that's a member of all three. So through pretty simple inference, you can say, hey, Russia and China are running the show. And um, it's very likely that when this thing plays out, and I'll talk about the thing. I mean, realize we're glossing over that. But <laughs> right. when, when this new currency plays out, that those other countries will join in. When you do that, uh, and I got found a really cool widget. It's a map of the world that's blank. And you can go country by country and fill in by color. Just you know, click on it and give it a color. And I did that. And I was like, oh, okay, here's the BRICS. It's five countries or whatever. Well, here are the, here are the applicants. It has another 20. Um, here's the SCO, a few more. Some of them are members of both. Uh, here's the EEU. has a few more. Again, many are members of both. Uh, and you keep going. And all of a sudden, like a light bulb goes on. I said, that that is... Halford Mackinder's global island, the, what he called the world oh. island. And th this goes back early 20th century, first probably greatest geopolitical theorist in history. Got to read his book if you haven't read it. It's pretty short. But he had this idea of, of the world island. That is exactly what they're building. Now, why is that important other than uh, the obvious, which is uh, you know more collective economic and population power. By the way, output of wheat, um, pick your metric. They this dominates the world. Well, uh, for one thing, if you're going to have a currency union, the more countries you have, the more likely you are to be successful. Mm -hmm. So why? Let's just kind of digress for a second. And what are the headlines saying? You know, again, you you correctly said, haven't we been talking about this for ten years? Or well, yeah, actually we have. But um, <laughs> but in the past year. What are the headlines? Um, China and Saudi Arabia are talking about selling oil for yuan. Uh, Brazil and China do large uh, multi-product uh, currency deal where they accept each other's currency. UAE, China, same thing, uh, selling oil for yuan. Uh, Russia, China, using yuan and rubles as payment methods for whatever they sell to each other. You know, Russia sells natural resources, China sells semiconductors, manufactured goods, and so forth. And there are a number of those. I don't have to list them all, but there are 10 or 15 of these. The reason um, the reason they've all fallen short, and very few of them have actually come to fruition despite the headlines, is when you have two countries and they're going to trade with each other and accept each other's currency, and you can do that, you're limited to what you can do with that currency. Right. And yeah. this is why... This is why the Russia-India thing is starting to break down. Russia has been pumping oil to India. India has been paying in rupees. But how much curry do you need? I mean, what's Russia, <laughs> what's Russia going to do with all the rupees? And Russia's starting to balk. They're like, hey, we, we, we're up to our eyeballs in rupees. Let's, we need a better system. Well, um, when you have a, a, a multilateral, multi-country uh, currency union, that problem goes away. Yeah. Because now... Russia sells oil to China. China pays in bricks, the brick currency pays you in brick. But Russia can take the brick and turn around to Argentina and say, we'd like to buy, or Brazil maybe, and we'd like to buy some Embraer aircraft. And Brazil gets the brick currency and they can turn around to China and say, we'd like to buy some rice. 
and then China takes, et cetera. And so you've solved uh, the quasi-barter problem. Mm-hmm. You've solved the problem of what to do with a, um, uh, a pile of currency that you really can't use other than certain goods and services, but not, not everything you want. And uh, there's an analyst who's brilliant. I read his stuff all the time. I'm like, man, you're so smart. And I just really follow him very, very closely and give him a lot of credit. But he came out uh, a few days ago, maybe a week, and said um, he'd heard about this and he was kind of dismissing. He said, um, you can't have a currency union without a um, common fiscal policy. And I said, I don't want to mention his name, but I said, uh, have you not heard of the euro? Um, and there is no common fiscal policy in Europe. Don't right. tell me don't tell me that Italy has the same fiscal policy as the Netherlands or that Germany has the same fiscal policy as Greece. They don't. They do have a central bank that issues the currency, has a little bit of gold, but not a lot relative to the size of the economy. Um, but there's no common fiscal policy and there's no common bond market. To this day, there's no such thing as a bond, I'll call it a euro bond backed by the full faith and credit of the entire European monetary zone. It doesn't exist. You can buy German bonds in euros. You can buy Italian bonds in euros, but you can't buy a euro bond backed by all those countries. So they don't have a common bond market and they don't have a common fiscal policy, but they do have a currency union that's very successful. So now back to the BRICS, they finally have the scale. They finally solve this um, problem, which I described, which kind of is not... When you get two countries, you're not too much further ahead than barter. But with 30 countries or 40 countries, you've solved that problem. Um, so that's that's the the background. Again, I want to just re, re, at the risk of repetition, I want to make two points. One, uh-huh. it's, it's been 17 years in the making. It's not an overnight thing. They yeah. replicated the World Bank. They replicated the IMF. Now they're coming out with a new currency. Now here's where. Here's where it gets really interesting. And I tell people, um, uh, I said, if you want to understand this, and I, it took me a long time to figure this out. I mean, I was just like slaving over it. But um, I said, if you want to understand this, you have to stop thinking like an American. You have to start thinking like a Russian. This is the kind of thing that pretty much only Russia could come up with. So uh, what is the brick? And by the way, I don't know if they're going to call it a brick. I'm saying brick for convenience. It doesn't matter what they call it, but I just call it a brick for for uh, for the time being. But they'll, they'll come up with a name. Who knows? The value of the brick is not determined with reference to any other currency. It's determined with reference to gold by weight of gold. Now, and I don't know the weight, they'll pick one, but again, it doesn't matter because the it's not even it's math, it's logic. And by the way, now um, we're back to Aristotle's transit of law. And this is the key. This is this unlocks the whole thing. Because um, Aristotle said, you know, if A equals B equals C, then A equals C. The B can drop out. It's not even uh, arithmetic, it's uh, it's logic. Uh it's, right. it's called the transit of law. I'm, I'm certain that Aristotle invented it. If any Greek scholars know an earlier source, let me know. Um, so what, what the BRICS have done is they have dodged the biggest bullet, the thing that caused Bretton Woods ultimately to fail, the thing that potentially stands in the way of all this. They've defined their currency by weight of gold. Now, uh, a weight of gold has a dollar value, right? So a equals B equals C. One brick equals one, could be an ounce or a kilo, it doesn't matter. You call it an ounce. One brick equals one ounce of gold equals today, 1970. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, through the transit of law, drop out the B and one brick equals 1970, $1,970. But that's constant. I mean, that logic works for a moment in time, but it's not fixed because the price of gold is going to fluctuate daily or minute, minute by minute, right? So what's going to happen is the dollar gold, call it exchange rate, the dollar price of gold. So the LBMA, the COMEX, the, the London Metals Exchange, um, you know, JP Morgan on allocated forward contracts, the whole huge gold market in dollars is still going to exist. In fact, uh, the BRICS want it to exist. And if, if I could just digress for one minute, Steph, I've never seen an international monetary uh, economic problem with more that has created more confusion. I won't say misinformation, that's a little try, but just confusion or maybe deliberate um, hyperbole than this one. Because let me tell you what this is not. I'm going to tell you what it is, but it's important to know what it's not. This is not the petro yuan. This is not the petro ruble. Mm-hmm. This is not a gold-backed yuan. This is not a gold standard. This is not the end of the U.S. dollar. It's not the end of the euro. It's not the end of the world. It's not any of those things. But that's what everyone's running around on websites or whatever, shouting. It's none of those things. In fact, quite the opposite. And this is where the Russian mentality comes in. The BRICS want the dollar to be around. They want the dollar gold market to exist because they get to free ride. The dollar has to do all the dirty work in the gold space and bricks get the free ride by declaring one brick equal to a weight of gold. Again, weight's the key. They just let the dollar gold market go wherever it goes and the brick is worth an ounce or whatever, kilo, whatever. And uh, yeah, the dollar equivalent under the transit of law changes, but they're not pegged to the dollar. They're not fighting that fight. So this, uh, I analogize this, it's like you're in your house in the backyard, you know, your landscaper is like digging trenches and putting in plants and sweating and doing all this work. And you're sitting there with a glass of iced tea enjoying the view. In other words, the bricks get to free ride on the dollar gold system. And they don't, they want that system. They don't want it to go away because they get the benefit of a gold value. Now think of what the bricks don't have to do in this scenario. They don't have to buy gold. They don't even have to own gold. They do, but they no one, no one in the world has enough gold to back a currency. This currency, the brick, will not be redeemable into gold. Now, maybe there's a dealer somewhere who will take it. That's that's between you and, and the dealer. But it's not like you're going to be able to march down to the People's Bank of China with a pile of bricks and say, give me the gold. They're not going to do it. So it's not redeemable. Um, they're not going to make a market. Uh, they're not going to maintain a value because they don't have to because it's by weight. They just get to sit back and piggyback on the dollar gold system and let the dollar do all the dirty work with one twist. And this is, here's the Russian uh, contribution. So uh, so you don't have to close your capital account. You don't you close it, open it, whatever. You don't have to buy gold. You don't have to make a market. You don't, you don't even need that much gold. You just say, this is the ultimate fiat currency. The word fiat in Latin means I say so. Uh, well, they, they say so, and there it is. Um, and uh, they uh, and they put the United States. They're ba- basically, step. This is a bet. This is a bet that the dollar is going to collapse against yes. gold over time. Over time, mm-hmm. I think that's a very good bet. I'm not. This is not a three month forecast. I'm not saying gold is going to go up or down in the next week. Who knows? But over time, now getting now now we're into what. Um, debt to GDP ratios, kind of, kind of stuff you look at all the time. Debt to yeah. GDP ratios. 
uh, annual deficits, I, um, dare I say, mo modern monetary theory or friend Stephanie Kelton. I mean, these, all, the, all these ideas are ruining the dollar and everyone can see it, but not yet. And so if you want to launch this new currency and you say, hey, long term, the dollar is going to collapse in terms of gold, I'll hook my horse to this wagon called gold by weight and I'll just reap the benefits and mm -hmm. I don't have to do a thing. Um, and so that, so if you see and the issue, the, sorry, the downside that one would normally envision, which is if you foresee the dollar collapsing relative to gold and the currency, therefore appreciating, there's a threshold of pain normally where they say, but you know, we don't want it that strong, but if they're trading within their own block, it doesn't become, it sort of negates that entire problem, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. They're trading within their own block. Who knows if others join, probably will, but they don't have to, they need a, you need a big enough block. There is a critical mass, but I would say at this point, upwards of 30 to 40 countries and, and all the other things I mentioned, that's a big enough block. You're defining it by weight. So you, you know, the market goes where, the, the dollar gold market goes where it goes, but you don't really have to worry about it because you're, you're anchored to weight. But here's here's the twist I like. So let's say, uh, and this is how it's going to play out. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Now you're in the United States. You're like, uh-oh, looks like I've been painted into a corner. What can I do? Well, one of the things you could do, I've told the Treasury this for years, they don't listen. I mean, they invite me in, but they don't listen. Um, one of the things you could do is buy gold. But mm -hmm. what happens when the United States buys gold? The dollar price of gold goes up and the brick gets stronger and the dollar gets weaker. Checkmate. In other words, the US is now in a box where you can't even get out of it by buying gold because you're gonna you're gonna weaken your own currency relative to gold in the process, and the bricks are just gonna sit there and not lift a finger. Um, so it's genius. Um, I, I got to credit the Russians. I'm not saying the Chinese couldn't think of something like this, but um, this has got Russia's fingerprints all over it. Uh, and, and getting back to something you mentioned earlier, Steph, okay, um, people have been talking about this for 20 years. You know, the Great Reset, uh, the end of the dollar, the collapse of the dollar, gold to the moon, et cetera. And it's never played out. And the reason are some of the ones we mentioned, which is the dollar has these huge embedded advantages in the form of its reserve currency status, not because everyone loves the dollar or they even love the United States, but because we have the only uh, bond market big enough to absorb global savings. The U.S. Treasury market is huge. It is liquid, um, but it's got a whole infrastructure uh, primary dealers that bid at auction, uh, when issued trading, uh, settlement, clearance, um, futures hedging, options hedging, uh, depository trust uh, corporation um, settlement, uh, on and on and on. It's got this huge infrastructure of um, you know, laws, rules, and regulations that they've been building for a long time. I was say sort of 200, uh, um, you know, 37 years since Alexander Hamilton. Um, but above all, it has the rule of law, that people just trust it. 
um, don't have to like the dollar, don't have to like the United States, but you trust the market. The U.S., in response to the war in Ukraine, broke the trust. Mm -hmm. They froze the U.S. Treasury assets of the Central Bank of Russia. Unprecedented. And I'm, I'm a sanctions expert. I work for the intelligence community. It was part of what I did was, you know, look at sanctions and uh, and CFIUS and, and a lot else. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, and I think I know that our BRICS friends agree, that's a default. You know, maybe S&P would call it a selective default, but Russia made the money. They bought the treasuries. They're entitled to principal and interest. And we're saying, no, you can't have the principal and interest. We're not paying you. Well, that's a default. I don't care how Janet Yellen wants to dress it up. And it was a shock. But worse than that, everyone else in the world was watching. Saudi Arabia, India, Brazil, Malaysia, and they're saying, and Turkey, and, and others, and they're saying to themselves, gee, what if the United States doesn't like what I did? What if they don't like my policy? What if there's a war in my neighborhood and they're not in favor of it? Are they going to freeze my treasuries? Well, until... A year ago, you would say, well, of course not. They would never do that. Well, they did in the case of Russia, and they will uh, potentially in the case of these other countries. So that was the catalyst. The idea of getting out from under the dollar, yeah, it's been around a long time. The feasibility of that was limited, capped really, by the absence of um, a bond market big enough to absorb global savings. But now the countries are saying, well, what good is it to have my savings in treasuries if you're just going to yeah. steal them? So I'll, maybe I'm not saying bricks are wonderful all, all out of the out of the gate, but at least it's not dollars. At least it's not maintained on a digital ledger at the U.S. Treasury, and at least you can't steal it. Um, and so that was the catalyst that drove this thing from a 17-year project to hey, warp speed, let's get it yeah. done. How do we do it? And there we are. And the other thing that they've been doing with those uh, dollars that they needed to recycle even before we imposed sanctions on Russia was obviously they were they were diversifying out of treasuries into hard assets. I mean, you've seen a shift from accumulating treasuries to accumulating gold and obviously China building strategic oil reserves, et cetera, and moving to Kabul together, as you mentioned, all these trade agreements outside of dollars. But they've been actively diversifying away from treasuries even before, you know, they began to wonder if they wouldn't have access to that money in the right. first place right. um but the gold thing i think is interesting because they have been accumulating gold in a pretty aggressive fashion i think it's interesting that you draw this distinction between currency that references gold and a currency that's redeemable in gold because a lot of the headlines that you read suggest this is a gold-backed currency which i guess is you know clearly something you would disagree with and you have I mean, do you believe that when they make this announcement on August 22nd or 23rd, they'll make clear that this is a reference and they'll come out with the actual weight, the gold weight and, and lay it all out? Right. A great question. Um, it's hard to be definitive on that. It's very hard to tease information out, um, particularly when you're with the Russians. Uh, about, two way, uh, about 10 days ago, there was a big headline, you know, South African, uh, you know, they call them Sherpas, but, you know, delegate to the BRICS meeting, not President Ramaphosa, but just some mid-level bureaucrat, whatever, um, says new currency not on the agenda. You know, and again, I don't want to mention names, but there are all these oh, right. yeah, websites, awesome. new currency not on the agenda, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> Sergey Lavrov said it is. Now, Sergey Lavrov is the greatest, smartest, most powerful 
diplomat in the world. He's the foreign minister of Russia. I wish I could say something similar about the U.S. team, but I can't. We got a, you know, Jake Sullivan's a, um, a political hack. Um, you know, Tony Blinken's a lightweight. Uh, Victoria Nuland's a bloodthirsty warmonger. I mean, we just have, you know, she's got like an undergraduate degree. Okay, you know, okay, school, but what kind of training is that for? Running the world. They're also just blinded by hubris. I mean, no one imagines that the BRICS could ever pose any material threat to U.S. hegemony uh, in any oh, fashion. You're you're absolutely right. I was in the Pentagon. It was a few years ago, but uh, it was like a, what they call a tabletop war games. So about fifteen experts sitting around doing scenarios, and um, I was sitting one seat away from a guy. He was U.S. Treasury. Uh, financial like delegate to Asia, so kind of ambassador at large for the dollar. Mm -hmm. His name was David Dollar, so it's kind of a, a nice twist. <laughs> but um, so I said, and I always tell people, I said, I tell, I'm in the Pentagon, I, try, I tell them what I'm telling you and your audience. Like I don't, you know, uh, it's the best analysis I have to offer. Although we're we're a lot further along today, um, and I said, you know, and this is back when the Iranian sanctions were a big deal. This is before before Ukraine and before Russia. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, this stuff works to an extent. It's not perfect, but it does work. And we did drive Iran to the bargaining table for the JCPOA in 2015. So I'm not saying it's completely ineffective. I said, but you guys are over, you're weaponizing the dollar. You're taking it too far and you're going to get a backlash. How many times can you punch the punching bag before the punching bag gets up and walks out of the room? That's mm -hmm. what you're facing. But I told him this like, like I say, eight, seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. David Dollar takes his hands. He takes both hands and slams them on the table, palm down. Boom. And he goes, the U.S. dollar has been the global reserve currency. It is the global reserve currency, and it will always be the global reserve. Wow. Currency. Ex exact quote. And I said, David, I feel like I'm in Whitehall in 1913 listening to John Bull say sterling as the global reserve currency, and it always will be, et cetera. I oh, said, yeah. you're blind. But, but hubris is a good word. Um, you know, in plain English, taking it for granted. I mean, if you take your status for granted, then you'll, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff and not worry about it, but you can't take your status for granted. You have to earn it every day. Um, and, uh, and through, tr and, and you, we got the trust. We started with the trust earned, like I say, since, uh, uh, 1791. Uh, but we blew it. And I've, I've always said, and I told the, I told government officials this, I said, I don't really think our adversaries can destroy the dollar. But I think we can do it ourselves. We, yeah, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think that so that brings me sort of if I can jump to the next uh, issue that I see with all of this is while it doesn't directly threaten the dollar's role as the reserve currency in the way you lay out, because they still need to work on building markets that are deep enough that they can recycle all these, um, you know, uh, surpluses into. Uh, but ultimately it does threaten the dollar's reserve standing because every trade agreement that is undertaken in something other than U.S. dollars is vendor financing money to the U.S. Treasury that's no longer coming in, which right. means there's only one natural buyer left, and that's the Federal Reserve. And QE, as I've said, since 2009, becomes a deficit financing necessity. It's not some discretionary economic policy. It becomes the law and the Fed has to just monetize until eventually the dollar, you know, buckles under the weight of all that, right. uh, you know, reckless. And that's exactly policy. right. And I would have said, and I have said, um, 
you know, in, t- in discussing could China be the global reserve currency, whatever. And I, I, I don't repeat it, but I went down all the elements and mechanics of and hedging of a of a bond market big enough to be the global to absorb global savings. And the Treasury has that. And I said, China's not even close. China's not going to be global reserve currency. For, I don't know, maybe never. Um, they don't have any of those things. They don't have primary deals. They don't have auctions. They don't have a large bond market. They don't have a rule of law. Neither does Russia. Who, who trusts the Russians? Um, but then in thinking about the BRICS currency, I had another one of these like aha moments, like where you know, like a light bulb goes on. I said, oh, I was doing some, I was writing or something, doing some research on World War One, uh, basically the history of government finance of war is what I was looking at, and uh, I saw this uh, Liberty Bond poster, and it was you know Lady Liberty, Statue of Liberty with a torch, and she instead of the tablet she had like a Liberty Bond, and she was like, "Come on, America, we got to win the war, buy Liberty Bonds." Um, and in my book, The New Great Depression, which came out in 2021, was uh, half the book was about the pandemic, half was inflation deflation, but the other half was the pandemic. And one of the issues that came up, because I said, well, it's kind of a new pandemic. Why don't I read about the old one? And I read like four or five books on the Spanish flu of 1918. And one of the vignettes was they they didn't they didn't know until 1930 what caused the Spanish flu. They didn't know what a virus was really until the electron microscope. But um, but they had a sense that it spread around. And um, so all so in Philadelphia in 1917, there was going to be this big parade to buy Liberty Bonds. It was like a a freedom win the war pep rally. And all these doctors from the University of Pennsylvania and elsewhere were like, don't do this. You know, you're going to get 100,000 people on Broad Street and, you know, they're all going to die of the Spanish flu, uh, in effect. Uh, And they went ahead anyway. They did it because for two reasons. One, that's how important it was. But two, um, there was more extreme censorship under Woodrow Wilson than there is today under Biden. I know that's, that sounds like can't be true, but it was. They were arresting people. You couldn't write a newspaper article about the Spanish flu because it was considered bad for morale in terms of the war. And in fact, the reason it's called the Spanish flu is that Sp- Spain was not in World War I. They were not a belligerent. So their newspapers like, hey, we got this flu, you know, and they, they were writing all that. And the rest of the world's like, hey, I read the the Spanish newspapers said they got a flu. So they called it the Spanish flu, even though Spain had nothing to do with it, because but they were the only country that was allowed to talk about it. So, uh, but what that did, if you look at the history of, um, these are some old names, I'm just, you know, been around a while, you know, E.F. Hutton, uh, Dean Witter, uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, when, when were these firms founded? It was around 1910, 1912, 1914, um, and uh, a little bit later in some cases, but that the Liberty Bond was the beginning of the retail investing market in huh. the United States. Prior to World War One, uh, U.S. wars were always financed by like you know big shots. You know, uh, Stephen Girard financed the world the War of eighteen twelve. Nicholas Biddle financed the Revolutionary War. Jay, Jay Cook financed the uh, James Cook rather financed the the Civil War. These like dealers who did it. But that all changed um, around World War One. So my point being. There's an example, contrary to everything I just said about China building a top-down bond market, and I don't think they can do it. Here's an example of a bottom-up bond market where you basically got retail investors to buy into these bonds. And if you get enough of them, you're going to have a bond market because somebody will start making a market in it. And let's say you go to a typical Brazilian 
and you say, hey, you got two choices. You can buy a, a Rice-denominated bond, or you can buy a BRICS-denominated bond. Uh-huh. What do you yeah, want? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then yeah. multiply that by the world. So I, so that's not going to happen overnight by any means, but I, I think there is the potential for an indigenous bottom-up retail bond market in the BRICS currency for the reasons I mentioned um, that over time, sooner than later, perhaps could could give you something like a reserve currency status. So the, this thing is so well thought out. Yeah. Uh, and they, they even things that I would have objected to as recently as a couple of months ago, I said, well, it won't happen because I'm like, I've now modified my because I'm like, no, actually it could happen. Yeah, no. And I think that context of how long they've been working in cooperation and not just the amount of time, but the depth and breadth of the cooperation and the fact that they're, like you said, you know, they're they're coordinating on social issues, economic issues, geopolitical right. issues. And then I read in the piece you sent me um, about a sub a submarine telecommunications cable oh, yeah. that they're yeah. setting up. I mean, can yeah. you do you have any more detail on that? You could hear. I mean, that's just I actually I actually know a lot about it. Uh, but they've built their own fiber optic submarine cable. They call it BRICS cable. Um, and uh because the, the U.S. is very good at tapping these things. Um, I've, I actually did a, a job once where I had to figure out all the global telecommunications in the world through cable. Is a long story. But um, there's something called Me, which is C is Southeast Asia, we uh, is um, Western Europe, and Me is Middle East. So Me is basically the cable system that connects Asia and London. And then there's a separate one that goes from London to United States, I know where it goes. I can't. I can't say, but you know, has a has a nice home in the United States. Um, and I know where the Middle East choke points are. And again, I won't. I won't say those. But um, the point is, if you can, if you cut that cable at one of those choke points, or you go off in somewhere in the Mediterranean and cut that cable, you shut down internet communications between Europe and Asia, like in a heartbeat, and by extension, the United States. Um, more sophisticated version uh, is to tap them. Easier said than done. Every now and then the, the internet will go out and go, oh, yeah, there's some problem with the internet. It's like, well, no, you're tapping the cable and you know, you'll, it'll be back up in a couple of hours. So the BRICS know this and they are laying their own cables. Now, easier said than done in terms of protecting them, but they want to have encrypted, secure communications and payment channels. Again, they've been screwed over by the West. We kicked them out of mm-hmm. SWIFT. We kicked them out of, um, you know, other interbank payment systems. Um, they ended Visa. Visa is no good in Russia. MasterCard is no good in Russia. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the banks can't transact in dollars, certainly. Okay. Uh, this is the 12th largest economy in the world. It's the largest landmass in the world. It's the largest nuclear arsenal in the world, um, et cetera. But you're saying you can't be part of the international payment system. Well, there's a simple solution to that, which is build your own. Yeah. And that's what they're doing. It's amazing. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, they they found a way around all of the infrastructure that we have in place that we have built over, you know, basically centuries. Um, and they, it looks like they're just going to leapfrog right into the digital age, both between that submarine telecommunications cable, but then also... Um, you see this BRICS currency really as a digital currency, do you not? Or, I mean, they're not going to issue tender. They're not going to have physical paper bills. No, they're not. And you also won't, it won't be 
a local currency. What I mean by that is uh, when you go to China, you'll still use yuan. Okay. When you go to Russia, you'll still use rubles. And there it does vary from the euro because in, in Europe, you, you use euros in all these countries. But yeah. that's okay. The important thing is the countries, when they settle trade deficits and surpluses or do purchases and sales between and among themselves, they'll do it in bricks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's much better than getting yuan or rubles. Sure. But again, you go to China, you'll still use yuan. So the, the yuan's not going away. The ruble's not going away. Who cares? You know, yeah. I go to Mexico, I got to get some pesos. Actually, use dollars in Mexico. But um, but you I mean you take the point. In Philadelphia, we call this walking around money. That the BRICS is not currency is not going to be walking around money. We're mm-hmm. not going to have paper versions. We're not going to have it in our pockets. I mean, I don't know, ten years, who knows? But not now. Um, in terms of what's going to happen on August 22nd. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Can you game out uh, what happens in the in the market response here? Well, the market response is going to be interesting because, I mean, it sounds like I broke into a safe in the Kremlin and stole this information. It's out there, but you have to know how to look. You have to know where to look and you have to know how to analyze it. And again, you have to just get out of your American mindset and mm-hmm. think about this from their perspective or, or you or you won't get it. Um, but um, so the meetings in Johannesburg, it's location flipped around, but they've ended up in Johannesburg, technically a place called Santon, which is a uh, Johannesburg is so crime ridden. They built another city right next to it. That's pretty clean. So they call it Santon. That's where the conference is going to be. This is the leaders summit. I mentioned they have a hundred or more mini summits all over the world. This is the leader summit. So um, Ramaphosa of uh, South Africa, Lula da Silva, Brazil, Prime Minister Modi of India, and Xi Jinping of China are going to be there. Now, Putin was supposed to be there, but here it gets complicated. There's an outstanding warrant for Putin's arrest issued by the International Criminal Court on, you know, oh. so-called war crimes. Um, you know, I, I think we could issue a few of those, but uh, it's kind of under the thumb of the U.S. South Africa is a member of the International Criminal Court. There's a treaty and they signed it. So um, everyone's like, well, arrest Putin when he gets off the plane. And President Ramaphosa said, no, we're not going to do that. And he called the Kremlin and said, rest assured, we're not going to arrest you. But the opposition party in South Africa filed a um, petition with the Supreme Court to get an arrest warrant. Plus, you have to worry about NGOs and third parties and, uh, you know, other people who might take it upon themselves. So Putin, I think, very wisely said, this is a distraction. We don't need this right now. So he's going to stay in Moscow and he'll participate by Zoom. And a lot of people go, well, there goes the the BRICS summit. I think the opposite is true. This is going to, first of all, infuriate the rest of them. And it's going to make them more determined because this is an example of Western hegemony. This is mm-hmm. an example of hegemonic bullying. Again, I don't, yeah. I don't need to take sides on the politics. I'm just telling you what's going on. And so the fact that Putin's got to sit in the Kremlin and zoom in um, mm-hmm. is, is another example of Western bullying, for want of a better word. Uh, but they're going to go ahead with it. Uh, Number one, number and Sergey Lavrov, who's the farm minister, will be in. Um, uh, in, in <laughs> I think he's the brains behind this. Um, so, uh, and I, I'm not. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we're all going to go to bed on the 22nd of August and we're going to wake up on the 23rd and there's a new currency and the dollar's done. No, that's not happening. Um, they're going to announce it. Uh, it will be introduced in stages. Uh, it will take a while to, uh, but but the big thing is the thing I mentioned, which is the definition will be by weight of gold. Now, by the way, uh, I won't take too much uh, time on this. 
This process is an exact duplication of the process that John Maynard Keynes went through with Bretton Woods. And he was ultimately unsuccessful. He was overruled by the United States and Harry Dexter White, who was the U.S. delegate, who turned out to be a Stalinist agent. We found that out later. But um, but what Keynes wanted, if you, and I'm sure you know this, he wanted world money. He wanted the Bancor. He didn't like the idea. He wasn't against gold, not at all. But he was against the idea that somehow only the dollar would be tied to gold and everybody else would be tied to the dollar. That meant you had to go to the U.S. And, and via the IMF and say, mother, may I, you know, devalue or whatever, because the U.S. was in charge. Um, Keynes, Keynes said, uh, let's have one currency unit, a, a world money. He called it the Bancor. And the other thing he did when he started, I've read all his papers, he started his research with a commodity basket. I uh, said, well, all right, nah. so uh, what's the, what's the bank we're worth? Same problem the BRICS are facing. What's the bank we're worth? He said, well, you could have so many barrels of oil, so many bushels of wheat, so many tons of copper, et cetera, et cetera, through this commodity basket. And he very quickly discovered that commodities are not quite as generic or homogeneous as people believe. They're oil, yeah, but there's 70, 72 grades of oil around the world based on um, <laughs> sulfur content, viscosity, transportation costs. They're not all the same. So through a process of elimination, he just said, well, why don't we just use gold? And gold's easy. Uh, it's not that it's pretty and shiny, but it's it's uh, it's an element. It's not even a molecule. It's it's an atomic number 79. It's either gold or it isn't. You, you, there's no debate about what gold mm -hmm. is. And it serves the same purpose, which is it gives you an anchor. And anyway, that was rejected. About six months ago, maybe a little bit longer, uh, maybe late last year, I remember reading about the BRICS deliberations on exactly what we were talking about. And maybe this is as far as a year ago, as long ago as a year, as a year but um, they were talking about a commodity basket, uh, you know, oil, wheat, copper, all this stuff. And I, I just said, my, I kind of laughed. I said, they'll they're never gonna, work they're going to end up with gold they're repeating Keynes' process and uh -huh. they're going to have the same result which is they're going to find it's not really feasible uh and they're going to end up with gold and sure enough they have but uh but the extent to which this is very much based on john maynard Keynes, what 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 Keynes wanted to do not where we ended up not the Bretton woods deal but but the Keynes deal with um with the world money tied to gold that's what they're doing yeah. Well, um, you know, since gold is near and dear to my heart, uh, when I sort of follow the dominoes, as it were, to the natural conclusion here, and even if on August 23rd, the world doesn't completely change, um, just that drip and drab that we talked about earlier, where there's less money flowing into the U.S. Treasury to finance our deficits, which clearly aren't shrinking, <laughs> um, right. So we've got a problem, um, and it's a problem which I happen to believe will be compounded by the recession that is going to come, regardless of what the stock market might like to imagine right now, right. Um, right. at which point, you know, the Fed's going to have to restart QE. Um, and I would think that that would push the accelerator again on this whole question of the dollar's standing and the willingness of the rest of the world to um, indulge uh, the exorbitant privilege or you know whatever phrase you want to use. And to me, the ultimate conclusion that I come to, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is that you know we just we have an issue that's untenable. We can't 
finance or deficits at this point. There's just no way. And if the Fed has to pick up all of the slack, its balance sheet is just going to explode um, to the point that it's just untenable for the dollar. And to me, the natural conclusion is, well, that just means we're going to have to go back to a gold link because otherwise we're going to have inflation that's Weimar Republic style inflation. Do you have, is that just a, a harebrained idea or what is your thinking on that? Uh, first of all, I agree with everything you said. With, Up until? With, no, no, with two footnotes. The first one is, is the Fed the ultimate buyer of last resort of treasuries? Yes. Um, but there's an intermediate buyer, which is the U.S. banking system. In the 1950s, uh, a typical large U.S. bank balance sheet was 40% treasuries. That was normal. That wasn't like hoarding. Uh, today, it's about 5 to 7%. Wow. So I think you'll get a phone call to Jamie Dimon and yeah. uh, the, all the other CEOs, uh, Jane Meyer, and the lady of City. Um, they'll call them first to say, you, people got to buy bonds. And of course, they're all under the thumb of the US government, and they will. So you might have a pretty good cushion of bond buyers before you have to turn to the Fed and expand the Fed balance sheet. Now, Especially if it's a recession, because they're not going to want to make loans with that money. They'd rather buy treasuries that are perceived to be safe. Probably. Correct. Especially with positive positive carry and lever, lever 10 to 1 under Basel, you can make yeah, very good returns on equity. So, um, so you do have a large pool of intermediate buyers before you get to the Fed. It doesn't really solve the problem. It just passes it around the banking system. By the way, the Chinese are doing something very similar right now. Everyone's like, why hasn't the... Um, uh, People's Bank of China sold more dollars. Well, it's because they're making the banks do it. The commercial banks are, are selling the dollars and propping up the yuan. Uh, and we could see something similar in the United States. So that's one. I, I just kind of pencil in the commercial banking system, at least the big banks, as a potential buyers of not quite last resort, um, as a way to put it. But the other, the other thing, um, the the BRICS, what they've done, this is part of the brilliance. They've opted out of the exchange market. They're like, because normally if the dollar is right. getting weaker, you're getting stronger. Um, that's bad for exports. It's bad for export right. related jobs, et cetera. You know, and it's currency wars. That was my first book, Currency Wars. But they've, by defining their currency by weight of gold, not not dollar amount, but by weight of gold, they're out of the foreign exchange market. Yeah, so and they can they, they can just sit back and watch the show. Yeah. Um, the other potential buyer, and this is what, you know, another self-serving conclusion is uh, public pensions because they're so underfunded. Um, and if, if the federal government actually has to backstop them, they may say, look, now from now on, you have to hold X percent of your assets in, in treasury bonds or something like that and create a natural buyer for the paper. Um, but so, no, it's a, good, it's a good point, Steph. There are some pools of capital out there that can't support the bond market, but then there's an opportunity cost. Like, what else could they be doing? You know, uh, infrastructure, uh, other kinds of investment, uh, it, startups. I mean, there are other things to do with the money. The bricks. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right? Right. I mean, right. that's going to be very interesting to, to see how that all unfolds. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, this has been tremendous. Are there any things that you think uh, were left on the cutting room floor here that you want to go back to and, and dig into? Oh, actually, I have one last question for you. Yep. And maybe this would be one of those questions. Um, is Does the election in 2024 here in any way uh, impact your thinking about the outlook for the dollar? I know it's it's hard to get into that without getting super political, but you know, when I think about the BRICS 
trying to create a an alternative to sort of the Western infrastructure and financial setup, et cetera. Um, it just seems like we're kind of, we're not, I don't know if oblivious is the word, but sort of benign neglect that the US isn't taking any of this seriously. Policymakers like you described, really don't view this as a legitimate threat to the US uh, hegemon status, much less the reserve currency status. Um, so they're kind of just not paying attention to this, don't take it seriously. Do you think that that will change in Washington and would the election in any way shift the um, urgency on policymakers here to be a little more serious? Uh, yes and no. I was going to say mostly no, but let me uh, talk about the election for a minute. And I don't, I, I, people think I'm a political junkie. I do follow it closely, but I kind of, part of me doesn't care. I'm like, ah, it's a mess. But, yeah. um, but I, gave a presentation to a big audience the other day and it was an end of the thing panel and they said you know what are we missing or what's going to happen where i said here's the thing uh was uh what have we learned i said well we haven't learned about uncertainty because we already know about uncertainty we all understand that we're living in an uncertain world and we have to make allowance for that so we didn't learn that we already knew that i said well but what is new is the tempo of shocks is accelerating Mm -hmm. um, there are shocks go back to the panic of 1837 or 1857 or 1898 you know you know all of them uh, I've lived through another enough of them I'm kind of a magnet for trouble but there's no end to financial panics um, but uh, what's uh, what, what what's different about this is that uh, we may be uh, looking at a, a, a tempo that's a lot faster it's not every seven years or every 10 years anymore between uh, the U.S. is using, losing the war in Ukraine badly. Uh, you might even see Poland come in and bite off the western half of uh, Ukraine, what former Ukraine, up to Lviv. Um, and Russia take the bottom one-third, including the entire coastline through Odessa, and leave a little rump state, landlocked rump state around Kiev, maybe. Um so uh, and there's no way there's no way to cover this stuff up. The, the New York Times and the uh, Washington Post, I read them the same way I read Pravda during the Cold War. It's all lies, <laughs> but they're valuable lies because it's good to know what the other guy's lying. Exactly. About. Yeah, if he's lying. He's like, you must be you must have a reason for that. It must be important to you. So there's intelligence value in yeah. lies, and that's why I read the Times and the Post. But I you know I taught um, I teach a uh, seminar on financial warfare at the U.S. Army War College. Very select group, about twelve. People in the class, seminar style, mid-career, 40-ish, um, you know, lieutenant colonels, Navy commanders, uh, huh. you know, that level. But but they've been handpicked as the future big brains. These are people who in seven or eight years are expected to be, you know, three-star generals, national security advisors, et cetera. Huh. And I, I do the financial warfare module. Um and I and I and I told them this. I said, uh, well, when I taught the class in 2022, I said the sanctions are gonna fail. Russia's behavior will not be altered. Russia's military will not be diminished and they will backfire on the United States. And they got a lot of pushback because everyone's gung-ho, you know. It's, yeah. Yeah, Ukraine. This year, when I the class was there, I, um, I said, here's what I told last year's class. And I was right about everything. I was Everything I said was right. So that got their attention. Um, and there was one lady 
kind of quiet, but very nice lady. And she came up to me afterwards. Oh, because I made a big deal about sourcing. Because if you don't, if you if you can't trust the New York Times, the Washington Post, or NBC, or any of that stuff, how do you find out what's going on? I mean, I'm not on the battlefield, not even in London. Um, and it was hard. I mean, I'm, I'm good at it, but that was hard. That took months to track down sources and websites and that you could rely on. It wasn't like the Russian uh, defense ministry. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, so this lady came up to me after the class and she said, uh, Jim, could you, you have, could you give me this list, your list of sources? I said, of course, you know, I'll email it to you, no problem. But then I thought to myself, wow, you're kind of senior in the state department. You have a top secret security clearance. You <laughs> you're like, everything. you should know all this, right? Why are you asking me for sources? Right. <laughs> I, I, I gladly gave it to her, but it shows how corrupt our government is that they're lying to themselves and that's the worst possible position to be in or how it, it, it bred that hubris is you know this idea that we don't have to research this because it's never going to be a legitimate threat to the way we work right now the status quo is going to remain the status quo forever yep. it's just amazing oh my gosh well this whole russian thing has been you know it looked like we really provoked it to some extent, yes. um, at least had a role in, you know, pushing Putin in there, um, presumably with the idea that it wouldn't inure to the U.S.'s benefits somehow. And it ends up not only being a disaster from a military standpoint, but because of the sanctions now from a financial standpoint as well. So, I mean, if you were to invent the worst possible policy, you probably would have done everything that that they yeah. did there, step yeah, by Victor, step. That, that's right. Uh, Victoria Newland won this war. She's the, she, by the way, she just got promoted yesterday. She's now um, Deputy Secretary <laughs> of State. She she replaced Wendy Sherman, who I don't always agree with Wendy, but she's smart. Victoria Newland has now replaced Wendy Sherman as Deputy Secretary of State, second only to the Secretary of State. Um, but uh, she won this war and she got it. You know, there's an old hmm. proverb, be careful what you wish for, you may get it. it. And yeah. that's exactly what happened. By the way, quick footnote, Victoria Newland is going to South Africa the week before the BRICS summit. Interesting. Now, she's, yeah, she's going to try to bully South Africa into huh. like not doing the deal or uh, joining Russian sanctions or anti-Russian sanctions. So it's, it's going to fail. The mission is going to talk, fail. Yeah, South talk Africa. about that. Two decades late and several dollars short on that. Correct. You know, where have you been for the last 17 years? So. Yeah, it's the opposite of diplomacy. This is like a schoolyard bully. And and why was Janet Yellen in uh, Beijing uh, three weeks ago? Yeah. Eating mag magic mushrooms, according to some reports. So <laughs> Right. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But, you know, uh, they get what they deserve because yeah. they've been, you know, walking blind into this whole situation um and and now we're paying the consequences so we'll see but jim this has been phenomenal i really enjoyed getting to talk to you maybe uh we'll see what happens on the 23rd but maybe we can do a conversation you know uh some months down the road and and uh mark our progress and see if anything new has developed on this front good i'd love to thank you well i hope you have a wonderful summer the rest of the summer stay cool and uh, thank you again so much for your time. I always learn so much getting to talk to you. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. Bye.